Well, good morning, everyone here again. Good morning to those of you who are in the gathering place. Good morning to you, those of you who are in Dwell, if you're watching online. Good morning to you, digital community. We are happy that you are worshiping with us and celebrating Reformation Sunday. How many of you, I just need to see a sign, of like how many of you got some major plans for this afternoon? You guys having a German-themed Luther luncheon to celebrate Reformation Day? Did you make a tulip-shaped Calvin cake for the, the occasion? No, no, you're putting the final touches on your Zwingli costume for tomorrow, am I right? Am I right? It's a big day. It's Reformation Sunday, and none of you probably would have known, <laughs> except that we're celebrating it here. Now, that's okay. Like, in some ways, I think that's just fine. I think if you had asked the original reformers, hey, were you all trying to do something major, trying to make names for yourself, trying to be influencers and things like that, they would have said, no, no. We were simply trying to be obedient to who God is and what God was doing in the midst of the culture and world that we found ourselves in. You know, Martin Luther, when he was first brought on trial after nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, which is why we technically celebrate Reformation Day tomorrow, but this is the Sunday for it. When he was put on, on trial and asked if he would recant the things that he had said against the Roman Catholic Church at that time, he responded by saying this, my conscience is a prisoner of God's word. I cannot and will not recant, for to disobey one's conscience is neither just nor safe. And then essentially he lays himself at their mercy and he says, God help me, amen. So in many ways we remember primarily these men, but there were women as well, for the way that they stood up in the face of the greatest political and religious powers in, that, that could come before them. And they remain true to God's word. And yet, as we look back on this, I, I want to ask, like, it, it, do we always see things the way things are? Do we always see things accurately? I just went on a 21-hour road trip a couple of weeks ago. And on that road trip, I listened all the way from Grand Rapids or Holland, Michigan, all the way to Marco Island, Florida, to one podcast, seven seasons, I don't know how many episodes, of Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. Who wouldn't want to listen to this guy, am I right? Now, for those of you who don't know, Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history is a journey through the often overlooked and misunderstood. Every episode examines something from the past, an event, a person, an idea, even a song, and asks whether we got it right the first time, because sometimes the past deserves a second chance. On this Reformation Sunday, I want to talk a little bit about the Reformation, and I want to do a revisionist history on it and look at whether or not we got it right, or if possibly there's something that we missed. This podcast is fantastic, by the way. He's got one called The Dog Will See You Now, where it talks about these dogs who have literally been trained to sniff out cancer. Like pre-screening for cancer could be done by dogs in the future. It's awesome, right? He's got one called 12 Rules to Live Your Life By, because that was a popular thing when he put this thing out, but he said, no, 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 no. there's only one rule to live your life by, always pull the goalie, because he's Canadian. But here, spoiler alert, the mathematics backs it up. He's got ones on memory and how, like, just, spoiler alert again, our memories are awful. They really are. They've done study. Anyway, regardless, this, 
this podcast looks back at the past and says, did we really, did we really get it right? You see, because sometimes we look back and we think of Luther and we think of Calvin and we think we, we got all these things and that was the Reformation. But in reality, the Reformation was not one thing that happened on October 3rd, 31st, 1517. There were many reformers who came after Luther. There were reformers who came before Luther. There was John Huss, who is decreed a, or decreed a heretic, and burned at the stake. Before him, there was John Wycliffe who stood up against the church to translate the scriptures into the vernacular of the day. But, but even those are not the only reforms of the church in history. You can go back even farther and you can find in, in 1056, 1057, I think, was the great schism, the split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, where they argued over incredibly important things, like whether or not you use yeast in communion bread. See, we don't worry about those things today, because, but they were incredibly important back then. They were major reforms. What language do we use? Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son or just from the Father? These were major things, but they were reforms, and they've been happening forever. The monastic movement in the, five, the fifth and sixth century, what happens as they sort of hold the treasures and traditions of the church through the Dark Ages? You see, reformations are happening all the time. It's not something that just happened once, but I think if we look, we can go back even farther than that. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. I think reformations are happening all the time, and I actually think that what we can see in the Bible is sort of the pattern for this, because reformation, I like to even align it with sort of a revival, something new that God is doing. Because, you know, a lot of times we don't think about these things of the past, and we think about only our present. We get caught up in kind of the world that we're living in. And I don't know about you, but have any of you asked this question recently? Is today worse than ever before in history? Like, have you asked that question? I asked somebody that the other day. I said, hey, I've only been an adult for like 20 years. I asked somebody older than me, and I said, hey, like, it seems like today is just absolute and utter chaos. Is this the worst it's ever been, or is this kind of the way it always is? And they replied, no, it's kind of the way it always is. <laughs> you see, we have this notion that we're somehow unique or different, but in, in reality, history repeats itself over and over and over again during the time of the Reformation there was corruption in the political and the religious leaders of the day. Does that sound familiar? People were buying and selling offices. How much money is going to be raised in this next election cycle? Millions of dollars? No, 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 billions of dollars. There is this, this fall of feudalism and this rise of, of noblism, and the, the gap between the rich and the poor was growing wider and wider. Does that sound familiar at all? And then you're like, but no, but we have the internet, right? Like there's this vast amount of information that we can receive from anyone, anywhere, at any point in time. They had the printing press. The printing press had just been developed and was introducing people all over the world to all kinds of new thoughts and actions. It was the 15th century's internet. You see, all the, the challenges and the confusion and the chaos that we're facing today, it's all, it's sort of a repeat of the past because history repeats itself over and over and over again. And yet, and yet I think that's okay. I think there are places here in the scripture where we can find hope in the midst of all of this chaos, where we can find revivals, reformations, and not just of, of movements writ large, but in, in each and every one of our lives. Because that's all Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and Huss and people like Wycliffe were doing. They were saying, hey, God has placed 
a call on my life. God has reformed my heart. God has shown me through God's word something new in me, and I just want to share it with everybody. That's how revivals and reformations begin. So if you're with me here in Genesis chapter 26, we're just going to read a couple verses here, and then we're going to put it in its setting and in its context. Genesis 26, verses 17 and 18. Genesis 26, 17 and 18 says this, So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Isaac then reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Now, Perfect transparency here. I chose this scripture passage because the Reverend Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones has no fewer than six sermons that he's preached solely on these two scriptures about revival. Because he sees in them, and I do as well, sort of a a literalism, but also a symbolism that's happening, not only in these two verses, but actually in the entirety of the story. So Isaac, of course, if you don't know, is Abraham's son. Now, Abraham has died, and Isaac is, is well, we'll get there in just a minute. But, but here, what's happening is Isaac, it says, reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham. Now, wells in that time were incredibly important because water is your source of life, right? And digging and finding a well, like this isn't like you just put up a drill and you get in there. I mean, this is hard work. Digging and finding a well was a sign that the God of your territory or the God that you worshipped was giving you this gift of life so that you could, you know, you could have flocks and herds, your family could live. The well and water was a sign of life, a gift from God. Now, what is happening here, though? Isaac is reopening these wells that his father had dug. And so let's look back just a few verses. If, again, you've got your scripture open, what happened? Why did the Philistines block these up? So let's just go up to verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father's Abra- in, in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. You see, the reality is, the truth, the the symbolic metaphor that that all this is, is that the Philistines are sort of the stand-ins for the reality of evil in our world. And the truth is, there is sort of this this good of God, and there are these evil forces in the world. And as God continues to move forward with God's people, there are actively forces in this world trying to get in the way, trying to stop things up. And so when the church, or when Christianity, the movement of God, grows too vibrant, there will be things that attack it, that will try and stop up the very source of life. Now, they'll do it very trickly and very secretively, right? 
But like in, in, in Jesus's parable of the four different soils, what does he say? He talks about the farmer who scatters seed and some of it falls along the path where the birds of the air snatch it up. Some of it falls among the rocks and some of it falls among the thorns where it gets choked out by the worries of this world, right? Those are essentially, like I would say, those would be like the modern day Philistines. Those are the things that are seeking to, to stop up this well of life. These things that maybe people or certain religions want to tack on to Christianity when it's like, no, 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 it's just about Jesus. When we start getting worried about our finances, when we start getting anxious about the things in this world, the devil celebrates and says, yes, I have stopped them up from centering their lives on that well of faith. I have begun filling it in with dirt. They're beginning to forget the stories. They're beginning to forget that their very source of life is Jesus and they're trying to do things on their own. Yes. You see, because this story as you read it is actually bizarre. If you start from the beginning of Genesis and you read up here until you get to Genesis 26, you find yourself at Genesis 26 verse one and you notice something weird happening. Just stay with me for a moment. This is what it says in Genesis 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land. And the author feels it necessary to note this. There's a famine in the land beside, of course, the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, I know that we don't have time to read Genesis 1 through 25 this morning. That would take a little bit. But if you start reading through this and get yourself up to verses 17 and 18, you start realizing, whoa, wait, wait, this thing that's happening with Isaac is the exact same thing that happened to his father, Abraham. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the famine that happened in Abraham's time. So Abraham, Isaac's father, there's a famine that comes, and then Abraham responds to that. Now his son Isaac is like, hey, now there's a famine in the land, and Isaac responds to it. And if you read through the rest of these verses, you find out he responds the exact same way that his father does. And what I think is happening here is God is showing us a pattern in the scriptures of how revival happens. Because revival is not something that's just needed every 500 years. Revival and reformation is not something that's just needed every 100 years. I think the scripture is reminding us that revival, reformation in a certain way, is something that needs to happen by generation. And that is that you and I, at some point, we have this maybe faith of our parents that we grew up in, and we need to develop our own sense. We need to redig. We need to look back and say, hey, those wells of Abraham, those wells of our parents, but you're going to find out what happens next. We need to find our own wells. And I think this passage shows us the pattern for reformation and revival as individuals, which, of course, we know through Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Huss, Wycliffe can lead to a reformation that catches fire through all the earth. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I'm going to start here, right? He says this. He says, things are never worse than they have been before. Because here is the reason. God does not change, and humanity does not change. So remember when I said, do you think things are worse than ever before? He says, no, no, no. Just so you know, history repeats itself, number one. And number two, things are never worse than they have been before. And here's the reason. Number one, God does not change. And number two, humanity does not change. Stay with me. So, 
He then, actually I don't think he does, I made this up, so let's just see if it works. It works in this passage. It talks about redigging the wells as a blueprint for revival or for reformation. All revivals, all reformations, whether writ large or on a small individual case, will begin with trouble. There was a famine in the land. This one, of course, this famine, besides the famine that came before in Abraham's time, or this famine that happened before, or this, or this, or this, it always begins with trouble. I believe in all this up, but wait a minute, something happens. Trouble begins, but this is not something to be concerned or anxious about. It could be the beginning of revival. It could be the beginning of restoration. It could be the beginning of some sort of reformation. There was a famine in the land. But now, what happens next? Always what happens next is this. It's a reawakening to God's promises and faithfulness. Why? Because God does not change. If we look back on the scripture passage, now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine, of course, in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistines and Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. So what is God doing in the midst of this famine? There's a new famine. It's a new generation. It's a new person. But what is God doing? God is remaining exactly the same. He says, that promise that I gave to your father Abraham, I'm giving you the exact same promise. There's a famine, there's trouble, I get it. But first of all, I want to let you know you can rest on this promise. I will bless you and I will be with you. I know it doesn't look like it, but all of these lands around you, I am chasing after you, my son, and you are mine. I will be here. God is always faithful. God does not change. And beginning of revivals and reformations in your life and my life, in the 1517s of this world, all begin with this new understanding that God doesn't change. Luther had this brilliant insight, justification by grace alone through faith. What? Where did this come from? It came from him reading the scripture, but it had gotten twisted. It had been changed over time. And so a restoration or a reformation begins by hearing God's promises, by redigging those old wells, re-understanding the promises of God because God does not change. And that's why there is nothing new. Does that make sense though? Hold on, let's stop here for just one second. Does that make sense when we say it's never worse now than it was before? And you say, well, sure it is. And you say, no, it isn't. Why? Because God does not change. If God changed, then you could say, oh, I don't know where God is. I don't know if he's going to be, I don't know if God's with us. No, no, no. Because God does not change, it's never worse than ever before. So that's the second thing, right? First thing is trouble a bruise. Second thing is God shares God's promises. Now the third thing, the third thing that happens in this story, exactly the same as in Abram's story, is that when Isaac goes to meet with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, do you remember this? What does he do? He tells the king that his wife, Rebekah, is actually his sister. The exact same thing that Abraham did with his wife, Sarah, that got him into trouble. He deceives someone else and conflict arises. This is actually going back all the way to like the original sin. It's the first sin where the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. And they take the fruit and they eat of it. Deceit is the first. So sin enters the picture. 
Now, this is going to be weird. I get that. We don't talk about that a whole lot in this church or, well, I don't, and, and shame on me for not. But number three is a reawakening to human sinfulness and our inability to progress on our own. Why? Because people don't change. This is why things are never worse than they have been before. Because God doesn't change, but also human beings don't change. Not on our own. Not on our own. Now I want to do, I want to do something. I want to do a revisionist history for just a moment on the concept of sin. This is what a guy named James Keenan says. He says, oftentimes what we think of is we think of sin as something that comes out of us in our weakness. And so in a moment of weakness, I lost my temper and I said things that I shouldn't have said. And so I sinned and I apologize. I confess that. Or in a moment of weakness, I gave in to an addiction, and so I, I sinned, and I asked you to forgive that. In a moment of weakness, I clicked on something that I know I'm not supposed to click on. I have sinned, I confess. In a moment of weakness, I, I, I cheated. It was just a glimpse. No one was looking, and I didn't think it would be that big of a deal, but ah, it was a moment of weakness. And we sinned. Now, that's all well and good. Sins. Confess those. But actually, he says, the real root of it is deeper. This is what James Keenan says. He says, to capture the breadth, depth, and pervasiveness of sin, I propose that sin is simply a failure to bother to love. You see, the first thing, that sin out of our weakness, our sins of commission, this is a sin of omission. You see what's happening in Isaac's story. It starts with trouble, just like Abraham. And then it goes with God's promises, just like Abraham. Then it goes with Isaac's deceitfulness, sinfulness, just like Abraham. We're going to get to the end in just a minute, but we've got to make it through this part. Look at what else he says. He says, this definition of sin is a biblical one. It captures the sin of what? Matthew's goats. We haven't gotten to that part of Matthew 25 yet, have we? It captures the sin of Matthew's goats, of Lazarus's rich man. Well, who is Lazarus's rich man? Lazarus is under eternal torment. No, Lazarus is not. Lazarus is at Lazarus, not Lazarus. Lazarus is at Abram's side, essentially in heaven. The, the rich man is down. And how does the rich man still treat? He says, send Lazarus to me. It's not a sin of commission. It's a, sin, it's a, it's a failure to understand the situation. The publican's Pharisee. What does the Pharisee say versus the publican? The Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like other people, like even this publican. He doesn't confess the sins that he's done. He's actually, the sin in the story is that he's failed to love the other, failed to bother to love the other. It's the wounded man's priest and the Levite. In the story of the Good Samaritan, well, that, the sin in that story is the priest and the Levite who go to the other side because they can't be bothered to love. Each of the Bible stories that refers us to sin refers us to one, uh, what one could have done and did not do. So I want to pause there for just a moment. There's trouble. We all have it in our lives. There's suffering. There's struggle. There are, are, are ways that we see the world that are not the ways that we assumed them before, whatever it might be. Revival comes then with a, a reclaiming of God's promises. 
God's promises that, that, that come true and are proven true through Jesus on the cross. This is how far God will go to show you that God is with you and God is for you. God will bless you. That God goes himself to the cross, sends his son to the cross in the person of Jesus saying, I will go so far as to death, but then, but then life comes. But the pattern of the story in the scripture is that life cannot come until we understand and embrace the concept of our own sin. If we don't get there, we will not see reformation. We will not see revival. We will not see restoration in our life. And so this is a critical part of the story. After all, why does does the author include it? He includes it because it's important and it's a part of the pattern. And so it's the invitation to, to, there are sins that we commit, But I know in my life, more often, the sin is, I know I should go and visit the prisoner, but I'm just too busy. I know I I should go and care for the sick, but I've got a lot of things on my plate. I, I know I should invite that person in, but my house is a mess. And to be honest with you, there's a project that I'm working on, and I'd really like to get it done. I know that there are people who are hungry and thirsty in the world, but you know, I, that, that's, there's just too much. I, I, can't, I can't do it. In James Keenan's view, the breadth and the depth of sin is captured by a failure to bother to love. Can I share one other thing with you as we close up here? I think as the church is perceived in the world, the world is much more ready to forgive us for the sins that we commit. I think if the, if the church just said like, hey, you want to know what? In a moment of weakness, we did this. They'd be like, yep, we forgot about that already. That's no big deal. The world is surprisingly short in memory and oddly enough, very forgiving for sins of commission. It's the sins of omission that ruin our reputation in the world. It's when we say we're one way. It's when we're saying that God is one way and then we don't follow through and be like that. That's when the world looks on the church and says, see, we knew it wasn't true. We knew there wasn't really any God. We knew that. We knew Because transformation and progress on our own is not possible. But when we cling to the promises of God, that we are justified by grace alone through faith, that God is for us, that God will bless you and keep you, that God will walk with you each and every step of the way, that God is chasing after you to the point of death on a cross because he loves you so much, when you acknowledge that, when you receive that. For Luther, actually, faith itself was a gift. It wasn't even anything that, like, I can't even choose to believe. It is a gift of the, the very faith that, that saves me by grace. Even that is a gift of God. All of this is a gift of God if I just yield and receive it. And then in the end, this is how Genesis 26 ends. There's a little reconciliation between Isaac and Abimelech. And on that day, it says, that day, Isaac's servants came and told him about a well they had dug. They said, we have found water. We have found new life. You have have redug the wells of your father. You have reclaimed the promises that God gave to Abraham. You have confronted your own sin by reconciling with this king. And now we have found new water. We have found new life. We have found a reformation. We have found restoration. We have found hope. We have found resurrection. We are a new 
people. Friends, that's what Reformation Day to me is all about. It's not about something that happened 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or, or however long ago. It's something that happened at the very beginning. It's a pattern that God sets out all the way back in Genesis that you are a reformer and I am a reformer because the Holy Spirit is in our life reminding us of who God is, how much God loves us, inviting us because the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us of our sin and then saying now with this new assurances that you have that God is with you, that nothing is new under the sun, that God stays the same, he's always faithful and true, that we stay the same, we're always sinful and messed up, but when we yield to that, new life comes because the Holy Spirit begins to guide our life, the Holy Spirit begins to to lead us on, on steps where we, in fact, do these things where we in fact become the church. Uh, Let me just put it this way. The reformation in my life, the restoration for me, as for me in my house, the desire in my life is that I would be a Matthew 25 person. That I wouldn't say, I know somebody's hungry, but I'm just too busy. I know somebody's thirsty, but you know, there's a lot of thirsty people in the world. I don't have enough money to solve all those things. I, I know that some of those things, I'm like, nope, not anymore. I will not fail to bother to love any longer because God has raised me up and God will raise all of us up and this church first of all don't hear what I'm not saying you all are incredible that Bethany Christmas program those Thanksgiving boxes the Thanksgiving offering the Operation Christmas Child like all of these things hey don't don't hear me say what I'm not saying don't hear what I'm not saying you all are incredible and yet I believe God wants to do even more through each of us out into this world. Let's pray our way into that. Heavenly Father, we see this pattern in scripture. It's this weird repeated story that goes from one generation to the other. In some ways, Lords, we see that the sin of the father, it becomes the sin of the son. Maybe the sin of the mother becomes the sin of the daughter. And yet you endeavor to break those cycles. And in the midst of that, you, you invite us to dig up these old wells, to, to look back on how you have served your people in the past. For Luther and for Calvin, it was like, whoa, 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 let's go back to scripture. Let's go back to your promises. Let's go, let's get away from some of these traditions and get back to this understanding that in your word, you said your Holy Spirit makes it a priesthood of all believers. Lord, as we celebrate this Reformation Day, more than anything else, help each of us to realize that you are endeavoring to revive each and every one of us. That as Jesus says, anyone who has me will have a well of living water or a spring of living water welling up inside of them. God, what an incredible promise. I want that for my life and I want that for each and every person who is hearing this message. Lord, not my words, but by the power of your Holy Spirit. Will you give that gift of faith that justifies, that saves, that redeems, that revives So that as we go out into this world, we have more than enough water to give because Jesus Christ is springing up in us. It's in his name alone that we ask these things, that we pray, and that we worship. Amen.